Welcome to New Creation, a home for the creative community of Los Angeles. For more information, visit our website at newcreationla.com. And now, the sermon. No sooner had Boaz gone up to the gate and sat down there than the next of kin of whom Boaz had spoken came passing by. So Boaz said, Come over, friends, sit down here. And he went over and sat down. Then Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. He then said to the next of kin, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our kinsman Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me so that I may know. For there is no one prior to you to redeem it, and I come after you. So he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you acquire the field from the hand of Naomi, you are also acquiring Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead man, to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance. At this, the next of kin said, I cannot redeem it for myself without damaging my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Then all the people who were at the gate, along with the elders, said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you produce children in Ephrathah and bestow a name in Bethlehem. And through the children that the Lord will give you by this young woman, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When they came together, the Lord made her conceive, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without the next of kin. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. The woman of the neighborhood, the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. Ruth 4, 1 through 6 and 11 through 17. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, friends, we are at the conclusion of our series on the book of Ruth, preparing our hearts in this Advent season for our coming King. And so I wanna just go through quickly and kind of review the story, catch us up to speed where we've been. So chapter one, we have Uh, the time of the judges. It was a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and there was a famine in God's land. And so this family, Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, their two sons decide, you know what? We're gonna go where the food is. We're gonna go to Moab, which was an enemy of God's people. It was a place that had oppressed God's people, that had seduced God's people, and they said, there's food there, we'll, we'll go there. So they left God's people, God's promised land, and they go to Moab. And while they're there, tragedy strikes. The patriarch of the family, Elimelech, dies. But Naomi and her boys decide to stay. So the uh, sons grow up, 
They get married, and then tragedy strikes again. Both sons die. And so Naomi decides, okay, let's all go back to Bethlehem, to her hometown. And on the way there, she changes her mind and says, you know what, you guys shouldn't go with me. I'm a cursed woman. You should just go back to your own people, to your land, to your gods, and I will just go my own way. And so the one daughter, Orpah, says, that makes sense, I'm gonna go. The other daughter, Ruth, says, no, I am with you. And she makes this incredible pledge of commitment. Where you go, I will go. Whatever happens to you, may it happen to me. Where you die, I will die, I'll be buried there. And so this, like I said, incredible commitment that's met with silence from her mother-in-law, Naomi. And so they get to Bethlehem and the women of the city see them coming and they approach Naomi and they ignore Ruth and they say, is this Naomi? And she says, you know what, don't even call me that. Naomi means pleasant, call me Mara. That means bitter because God has dealt bitterly with me. And so she says, I left Bethlehem full, but now I am returning empty. And so chapter two, they're there, they're in Bethlehem. And so Ruth, the daughter-in-law, goes on the look for food. She's young, she's single, she's foreign, not just foreign, but a foreign enemy of God's people. And it's very dangerous, but her plan is to go and clean, uh, to go and glean, rather. And gleaning was uh, this basically kind of uh, helping the poor program where field owners would leave the edges for the poor to come in and work that portion of the land. So she decides, I'm gonna go do that. I'm gonna go glean and uh, I'll find someone's favor there even though it's dangerous. And so she just happens to land in the field of this man, Boaz, who is her distant relative, a relative of her uh, father-in-law, Elimelech. And this man, Boaz, is an upright man. He is one of the most pure characters in, uh, in all of scripture. And he notices her and he extends her this incredible kindness. He protects her, he instructs his men who, again, time of the judges, do whatever's right in your eyes. He tells them, don't touch her. Don't lay a hand on her. He offers her water when she's thirsty and she's overwhelmed by the kindness this foreign Moabite woman has received. And then he just piles it on even more. He sees all that she left behind to take refuge in God. And he is moved towards incredible generosity. So he invites her to his table at mealtime. He feeds her to the full, even with leftovers. And he tells the men, you know what, make her work easier. Instead of her having to like work the fields, just leave out bundles for her to take. Such incredible kindness. And so she goes home at the end of the day with 30 pounds of barley. She tells her mother-in-law, Naomi, what happened. And Naomi is amazed 
and for the first time, she starts to understand, maybe, just maybe, God isn't against me. That takes us to chapter three, where we were last week. Now, Naomi, her mother-in-law, wants to move this relationship along. She wants to see Ruth not just fed by Boaz, but she wants to see Ruth married. And so Ruth has been in the field working, but no marriage proposal has come. And so Naomi says, let's speed this thing up a little bit. Tell you what, go to the threshing floor, wait there until Boaz eats, has a little wine, goes to sleep, and then lie down at his feet and just do whatever he tells you to do. Whoa, right? Very risky, very ambiguous what she's asking. And so Ruth agrees to it. She goes and does all of that. Uh, she lays down at his feet after he goes to sleep. And Boaz awakes and he's startled. And Who is this? And she gives a marriage proposal. Will you marry me? Right? Very bold. Goes against all cultural norms and asks for marriage. And so Boaz says, well, there's another redeemer, another person that's closer to you in kinship, and we have to do the honorable thing. He has to have uh, the opportunity to marry you to redeem you and your family, to further the name of Elimelech. And so he says, you know what? I'll go, I'll go and do it, I'll ask, and if he says no, then I'm your man. And so uh, she goes back home, she tells uh, her mother-in-law all, all that's happened, and Naomi says, just wait, you can rest because the matter won't be settled until, or he won't rest, rather. Boaz won't rest until the matter is settled. And so that brings us to, that was chapter three. Uh, and that brings us to uh, chapter four today, answering this question, what's gonna happen? How is it going to turn out? Will Boaz end up with Ruth or the other kinsmen? So before we jump in, let's take a moment and pray that God would open our hearts to his word. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this morning for the story of, of Ruth. Thank you how you've been using it over this last month to prepare our hearts for the coming King. Lord, would you speak to us today? Would you open our hearts, illumine them to your word? Would you comfort us and challenge us? And Lord, would you transform us, make us more like you. And Lord, I pray that you would use me, a crooked stick, to draw a straight line to this truth. I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, one of my favorite Christmas movies, The Princess Bride. Wait, that's not a Christmas movie. Everybody wants to label everything a Christmas movie now, so, but this isn't a Christmas movie, but it is a movie that I really like. And so uh, Princess Bride uh, has this great section in the movie where the grandpa is telling his son this story and it's built up and uh, there comes this point where he's reading the story and he says, Wesley, who is the, the love interest of the princess, uh, he 
has been tortured to death. And the grandson says, what? Grandson says, what? How, how could that be? You, you got it wrong. That's not how it's supposed to end. They're supposed to be together. I know how this goes. This is a terrible story. What are you doing, Grandpa? And I think uh, we get a little bit of that uh, in this transition in Ruth from uh, chapter three to chapter four. This crazy turn of events. Uh, let's look at uh, verses three and four. He then said to the next of kin, this is Boaz, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our kinsman, Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, but in the presence of those sitting here, in the presence of the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me so that I may know, for there is no one prior to you to redeem it, and I come after you. So he said, I will redeem it. What? That's not supposed to be how it goes, right? Boaz and Ruth, they're supposed to be together. What do you mean, yes, he'll redeem her? It's this, this surprise turn, right? Everything's moving along so nicely. Ruth and Boaz moving towards marriage, and then all of a sudden, no, there's another. And he gets first right of refusal. And this initial presentation, he says, yeah, okay, I'm in. So all I have to do is, um, there's just an old lady, Naomi, I take care of her, I get the land. Win-win. And yet, Boaz says, well, by the way, there's, there's one other thing. Uh, let's take a look at five and six here. The day you acquired the field from the hand of Naomi, you're also acquiring Ruth the Moabite the widow of the dead man, to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance. At this, the next of kin said, I cannot redeem it for myself without damaging my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So, if you inherit the land, you also get Ruth, the Moabite widow, and you have to give her a child to maintain the name and the inheritance of her dead husband. And at that he says, I can't. You know why? Because that will take away from what I already have. The cost is too much. When he has everything to gain, he is so quick to say yes, but when it costs him, he says no. And I think that is often true of us. We're often quick to serve when there's some kind of benefit to it. And so when we're presented with, with serving, we go, well, will this fulfill me? Would I like it? You know, we kind of run it through that grid and often say yes or no to it. And so what happens here um, is that Boaz says yes, even when he has to absorb this incredible cost, okay? So he gets to marry 
uh, Ruth, but his name is not going to be carried forward. Ruth's uh, progeny, Ruth's children, child, is going to take the name of Elimelech. And so that uh, period of time, your name carrying on was everything. And so Boaz says, I'll do it even though my name won't be carried forward. And so he says yes and absorbs that cost. Now the next of kin, what's fascinating in this story is he remains nameless. Everybody else is named in the story except him. The author goes out of their way to make sure that this kinsman, this next on the list, remains nameless. Now think about this. Had he said yes, it would be his name that would be famous. It would be his name that is attached to the line of David and ultimately the line of Jesus. And so what an enormous blessing he forgoes by not willing to be a giver, but rather only a getter. If I can get something out of it, yes, but if it's gonna cost me, no. And that decision leaves him ultimately nameless. He is not named in this story. And it's a good lesson for us. We live in a culture of getting. Accumulate all you can. And I think even the language we use at Christmas is a good indicator for that. You know, Christmas morning comes and then the, stall, uh, the calls start coming and they ask what? What'd you get? What'd you get for Christmas? How many people uh, get a call that says, what did you give? <laughs> Nobody really asks that, right? Just what did you get? And then even when it does enter into giving, it still uses getting language in our culture. What did you get for them, right? What did you get for your kids? What'd you get for your wife? What did you get for your family? We're such a culture of getters. And here we get this beautiful picture of a giver. Let's move to the next piece of the story here. So Boaz pronounces his intentions. He says, I am going to redeem Ruth. I am going to redeem Naomi. Verses 11 and 12 tell us this. Then all the people who were gathered at the gate, along with the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you produce children in Ephratah and bestow a name in Bethlehem. And through the children that the Lord will give you, by this young woman, may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. Okay, so this pronouncement of blessing upon Boaz. He says, may Ruth, who you are redeeming, may she be like Rachel and Leah, who are the mothers of Jacob's 12 sons, who would eventually become the 12 tribes 
of Israel. And so we see out of Jacob's family, a whole nation, a whole people is born. And so they say, may your house be like that. May you become famous in Bethlehem through the line of your children, right? So his name is not gonna go forward, but they say, may your name still be famous. And then may you be like another famous family in Bethlehem, the house of Peretz, that began with a widow, Tamar, and became this famous household. So these incredible blessings that they're pronouncing on Boaz. And so he receives this very public blessing for his kindness. And then the blessing just starts to unfold. Let's take a look at verses 13 and 14. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. They came together. The Lord made her conceive and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without next of kin and may his name be renowned in Israel. So if you remember back uh, earlier in the story, when Ruth was in Moab with her first husband, they could not have children. She was barren for 10 years. And now it is God who is opening her womb and giving them a son. The son's name is Obed, which in Hebrew means servant. They're giving him a son that will be a servant. And Ruth tells Naomi that this son will serve her in her old age. And then Ruth takes the child and she sets the child on Naomi's lap and Naomi nurses the baby. Naomi, this woman who had lost her husband, who had lost her two sons, nothing can bring them back. But then God replaces this bitterness, this heartache with a joy. He gives her a daughter-in-law that is worth more than seven sons and he gives her this child. It's an amazing turn. It's an amazing blessing. Then we go to verse 17. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. And so we get this uh, additional kind of surprise turn in the story. God has not just been working in these widows. He's actually been working for the whole nation of Israel. So at the beginning of the story, we get this line that it's the time of the judges. There's no king. And we get to the end of the book and we get here's the lineage for your king. So God has been bringing uh, Naomi, who was empty, back to fullness. And at the same time, he is bringing a king where there's been no king, where everyone is just doing what is right in their own eyes. 
God has been at work. And so Ruth, Naomi, Boaz, they all experienced the blessing that the elders of the city had pronounced. Their household would become famous through its children and bring blessing now to all the families of the earth. And again, it's just this beautiful bookend in Bethlehem. Emptiness, now fullness. No king to the coming lineage of the king. And that king would be the line of Jesus, the line of David. And so what's amazing is that the Christmas season is this announcement of a king, that our king has come. But here's the thing. The place we live, the culture we live in, is founded upon not having a king. We don't want a king. In the last week, our president was impeached now, no matter how you feel about it, right or wrong, the accusation was he's acting like a king. Okay, so our culture does not want a king. Why? We want to be our own kings. And that has been the temptation through the whole story of Scripture. It started in the garden when Satan tempts Eve and says, if you eat of this fruit, you'll be like God. You'll be like a king. We want to be in control. Now, the time of the judges, we saw that everything, uh, everyone was doing what they thought was right in their own eyes. And it was a time of anarchy and of darkness. And we live in a time where doing what is right in your own eyes is seen as a virtue to be championed, right? Do what your heart tells you to do. Do what feels good. Do what you want. Nobody can tell you what to do. You know why? Because you are king. And yet, here we are at Christmas celebrating, we have a king. Our king has come. Is that good news? Jesus, our king, means this, that there is a competing rule, right? So if Jesus is king, guess what? It means I'm not. And that is how the gospels start. They start with this competition for who is king. Let's take a look at Matthew 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So they come to the king and say, we've heard the king has been born. What does that mean for Herod? Wait a minute, I thought I was the king. There's another king. Who's king here? Is it me or is it him? We go to Luke 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus 
that all the world should be registered. This was the first regi uh, registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Okay, so here's the emperor of Rome throwing his kingly weight around, going, okay, everybody go and register. Go to your hometown so you can pay taxes. When the emperor, when the king says jump, you say, how high? Right? Who's the king? And this in the face of Jesus, the king being born. The reign of Jesus becomes a threat to any other king that is trying to hold on to power. And so that's the challenge for us. If Jesus is my king, then it means he rules over my life. It means that I am not my own king. And it means that uh, there's some real enormous implications of that. Number one, it means Jesus can tell me no. We don't like that. So how is that good news then that the king has come, that Jesus has come? Well, let me point you to his reign, what his reign is like. And I'll argue this, that the reign of Jesus in your life is better than any reign you could ever have for yourself. Let's take a look at Isaiah 9. Speaking of the reign of Jesus, prophesying the reign of Jesus. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Like Ruth and Naomi, we have been given a son, the son of God. We have been given a king. And his kingdom will be an eternal kingdom of peace. So let's just be honest for a moment. As you see yourself as king, how much peace does that bring? When I act like king, peace is pretty short-lived, right? Maybe that's true for you too. But the king, Jesus, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom of peace. That is a better king than I can ever be. Let's look at Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. Speaking of this king as a servant, as a suffering servant. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity, iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The rule of Jesus 
is a rule of serving. His rule is an others-focused rule. His rule, his kingdom is one where he suffers for those that he loves so that they could have peace. How much others' suffering is there when we are our own kings? When we're our own kings, we're pretty ready to, to suffer for what we want, but not so much for what other people want, need. So the kingdom of Jesus is a much better kingdom than I could ever rule. And our king is not only serving, is not only willing to suffer for us, is not only bringing about peace for all eternity, our king transforms our heart. He gives us actually a new heart. Ezekiel 36, 26. There it says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So not only does God give us a son, a prince of peace, a suffering servant, he gives you a new heart through faith. He takes our heart of getting and transforms it into a heart of giving. He takes a heart of chaos and transforms it into a heart of peace, a heart of self-serving and transforms it into a heart of others serving. It is only in receiving the Son of God through faith that our hearts can be transformed like this. And here's the thing, when you're your own king, you might be able to transform your behavior, but you can't transform your heart. You can't make your heart change. And that is why Jesus is the best king, because he can transform your heart. So in preparing our hearts for Christmas, going through Ruth, I hope a few things for us. One that we see that there is an emptiness in our lives that's directly connected to our need for a king. We cannot save ourselves from that emptiness. We need a redeemer. Our redeemer comes for the wayward, wandering child, and he comes for the outsider, the outcast. And whichever side of that you find yourself on, I bring you good news of great joy. To you, a son has been given. He is the everlasting prince of peace. He laid down his life for you as a suffering, serving king. And so this Christmas, I invite you to join with the angels, with the shepherds, with the magi, and bow the knee of your heart to our glorious King. May he rule in our hearts together. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks 
that you have given us a king, that you have brought us from emptiness to fullness through faith alone. And Lord, it is a journey. And so Lord, I pray that you would be at work in us together, continuing to transform our hearts to be more like you. Lord, change us from getters to givers. And Lord, remind us as we celebrate the coming of your son over this next week, that there is a call to bow the knee of our hearts to the King of Kings, to let him rule over our lives, to lay down our crowns before him. We are no king, but Lord Jesus, you are. Rule in our hearts this day, we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this sermon and encourage you to become a regular member of our online community. To find out more about the church, visit our website at newcreationla.com.